the story, but it's not over yet. David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho. Legendary drag artist Dusty O has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it in a huge wig and couture designer outfit. Here David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Hello, David. Hello, Jackie. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Good man. I'm very good, thank you. Okay, so last week it was all about the 80s. It was. So this week we're all about the 90s Mm. and what? A decade you had in the 90s. Well, I don't remember most of it. <laughs> I developed quite a healthier affection for the illegals okay. during the latter part. <laughs> well, let's see what we can remember, shall we? Okay. Okay, so we left the 80s and you were heartbroken. I was. Lee was no more. No. And you decided to move to London. Yep. So what prompted that? Well, after... After Lee and I split up, it was about six months of, I was, I've I've never felt as devastated. To this day, I've never felt as devastated. I don't think you do after your first, I think your first love is devastating. It it totally broke me, really. Um, But in, in a sense that it also gave me a, a massive opportunity because I couldn't face anything that, reminded me of our time together. I couldn't face anything that reminded me of him. And I knew I had to get out of it. You know, I knew I had to. Otherwise, I'd have been dead. That's how I felt. I used to, we used to drive around Andrew. I told you about my friend Andrew and his car. And I used to sit in the front and I used to think, I wish we could crash into that wall. Then I could stop feeling like this. So it was serious, you know, and I lost a lot of weight. I went down to eight stone. I was having a bath once and, um, my mum came in. There was no lock on our bathroom door. She had, she'd have knocked it down anyway, but um, she came in and she saw how thin I was and she said, you've got to stop this, son. I don't know what's gone on. I know something's gone on. Did she know you'd I had... hadn't told her about Lee. I no. kept it all secret. And she wouldn't have been ready for it at that point. But she was so devastated when she saw me and so thin and I wasn't eating and just... Terrible, real state, really. For someone so young, you know, it was like, it was bad. And so Andrew and I formulated this plan um, that we'd come and have a look at that there, London. My friend Hayden, who I'd done a lot of clubbing with in my earlier years, he'd moved to London and started at university. So he was living in a house with a lady in Barnes. So we drove down. Lovely, lovely house in Barnes. You know what Barnes is very mm, pretty, very nice. posh area. I thought the whole of London was like Barnes because <laughs> <laughs> how wrong I was. Um, <laughs> and there was a spare room. And so I just said, can I have it? Basically, I'd got a couple of thousand pounds left over from the business. I thought I must be able to find a job in that there, London. Never had a job. <laughs> but I was, what, what sort of job? I was convinced that I'd find a really... Did re- you think? Oh, I thought I'd find a really good one. Someone would see the, this massive promise about this kid who couldn't do anything really and they'd either make me a pop star 
or I'd become a top fashion designer or, you know, something like that. A lot of money. You'd have a lot yeah, of I'd money. Yeah, I'd have loads of money. Everyone would love me. I'd do nothing. Nothing. Lie in bed and peel grapes yes. and apply eyeliner. Um, it wasn't like that, of course. No. Funny <laughs> so, that. So we came down to London and I'd got my two bags of clothes in bin liners. Um, my mum was very upset. She said, oh, but you'll be back in three weeks. You won't last down there. So we had two months in Barnes. <laughs> Within two months, I think I had about four jobs. <laughs> but they were always awful jobs. I worked in a Japanese knickknack shop on Regent Street. That lasted about three hours. When they told me I'd got to wear a green happy coat. Didn't make me feel very happy. No. So I left at dinner time. Great. Didn't uh, go back. Didn't go back. No. Yeah, yeah. Worked in a tie shop for about four hours. Okay. Decided that ties weren't my thing. No. Really. So then I saw that there was an advertisement. But you know what? In those days, you could just walk out of one job. Oh, and, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the man from the tie shop kept phoning for weeks. He <laughs> said, oh, you're very good. You're very good. You've got a lovely personality. And I was like, no, I'm not coming back. I used to put the phone down on him. So um, I decided to try and focus on something that I was good at and that I knew about, and that was makeup. So I saw this advertisement in the back of the Evening Standard when it wasn't free. It was for a, a, a company called Beauty Consultants Bureau, and they were looking for freelance, um, basically makeup girls to stand on the counters, boys and girls to squirt perfume. And uh, so yeah, I, I went and I got the job. I was interviewed by. I think what was the equivalent of Mrs. Slocum. <laughs> and I basically, I bluffed and lied my way through, through it because I had not really any experience of Dior or Chanel. I'd been using boots number seven. You know, it was all I could afford. But I did have a basic knowledge and I was quite chatty and cheeky and whatever. And I'd had my hair cut as well by that time, so I didn't look quite as freakish. And so I started working for Longcom in various counters, did that for about a year and loved it, actually. It's and like, did you get lots of freebies? Got loads of freebies, oh, got all my nice skincare lovely. and you name it. All the girls on the other counters would give me bits and bobs and, and it was fun. And I worked in Boots in Knightsbridge, opposite Harrods. And I did that for about a year and it, it was great fun. I did you get it. lots of famous people coming in? Oh, Esther Ranson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she bought some perfume, Esther Ranson. And I was on the Esther show as well about 10 years after that. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I never told her. I did I tell her? I think, I think I did say I sold you some perfume 10 years ago. <laughs> but you enjoyed it. So you enjoyed I being... I did enjoy yeah. it. I did enjoy it. It wasn't great money, but it was, you know, I'd never had a proper job. You know, it's not the hardest of jobs, flogging slap. <laughs> no, and you can go... And I like makeup. So. Well, exactly. You like makeup, but you can go away and not think about it. Yeah, yeah. It was perfect. And the rest of the time I'd be going out, you know, investigating London. We'd moved from the house in Barnes to Deptford, of all places. This is the 18th floor of a high-rise flat. And I rented a room, I think it was £25 a week. It was terrible. It was so rough. You know, there was always poo in the lift. Uh, dog fighting down by the basement. Oh, it was terrible, absolutely awful. But I didn't really care because I could get on the bus and in 25 minutes be in Oxford Street or, you know, Carnaby Street or looking around Camden. And so I didn't care about the flat. And it was fun. It was like it, I was a baby, really. It was a new city 
doing new things. In Birmingham, I'd become quite well known on the club scene, you know, and through having the shop. But in London, obviously, it was a little no one, but I'd got big ideas. And um, I decided, I, I did a list. I wrote a list of all the people who I wanted to get to know in London. And there were people like Lee Bowery, Boy George, Steve Strange, um, various club promoters. And I ticked them all off eventually. It took two or three years, but gradually I, I ticked them off. I got in with the right people. I was terrible. I didn't, networking, I don't think I did, you know, the name networking hadn't really been coined at that point. But that's what you were doing. But I was a total little networker, you yeah. really were. Oh, I went for it. That I really could be your next go. company. <laughs> Without the help of a mobile phone or the internet, I networked all the right people. But that involved going out, you know. So I was going out two or three nights a week, um, having a lot of fun and, you know, for the first time in my life, sort of having casual relationships, shall we say, with people, um, learning about my own sexuality I suppose because it had been very limited up until that point and that was a, a time of experimentation for me and it was a wonderful time in London Clubland as well because sort of the early 90s you've got Kinky Galinky and clubs like that were going on and Kinky Galinky was this massive sort of thing in Leicester Square at the Empire and every, every month so a couple of thousand people dressed up to the nines, you've got drag queens, transvestites, club freaks, all your pop stars. Oh my God, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And everyone lived for that one night a month. You prepare, the whole month would be spent preparing your outfit and, you know, it was amazing. So it was very, it was, and there was lots of spin-off, little spin-off clubs that were like kinky glinky. So if you wanted to dress up, it was a fabulous time. And were you dressing up then as a woman? No, not no. quite. Well, I did for Kinky, but not for the other nights. For Kinky, um, my friend John would come down from Manchester and he would design and make these um, matching dresses and we'd do this drag duo called um, I Was Dusty Samaritz because I used to smoke Samaritz cigarettes <laughs> and he was Bunny Benson and Hedges. And we'd have matching outfits and matching wigs and looking back we looked awful, but we thought we looked fabulous. And we had a great time, you know. It sort of taught me the basics about drag because up until then, I hadn't really done drag. I'd just done alternative, you know, as I called it, titty drag. Boobs and bum and corsets and, you know, an emphasis on really trying to look feminine. So that taught me the basics in that, really. And I also got to know the people who would be pivotal in my club career, people like Tasty Tim and various club promoters, Wayne Shires, Princess Julia, Philip Salon, I got to know during that time. So it was, it was a time of learning and networking, but without actually thinking too much about it, other than my little list, you know? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult... No, I was Jewish tie. It was just I you going to get out to know them because making they, sure you were going to the right places. Yeah, going to the right places, and, and the people who I wanted to get to know, I didn't want to get to know because I wanted something from them. I wanted to get to know them because I thought they were interesting, and you just wanted to be around them. Yeah, of yeah, course, and be part of, of that gang. I'd be part of that gang. I'd found my tribe. Very interesting. Very and were you going home time. at that point, or did you just? Yeah, I was still going home visiting my parents and things. And gradually, our relationship, my relationship with my mom, started to thaw a bit during that time, and she became a little bit more open-minded to the fact that I probably wasn't going to be how she imagined me to be. <laughs> but that you'd be okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She used to say things like, um, "Oh, 
you can't look like that when you're 40. And when I was 40, she came to my birthday party uh, in Sound on Sunday in Leicester Square. And I was full drag and there was like pop stars and all sorts there. And I said, do you remember when you said to me, you can't look like that at 40? Well, I have. Well, here I am. <laughs> but that was her initial education was like, <laughs> we were still going through. But yeah, I mean, I was always very attached to home, very attached to my parents. And so you were on the makeup counter for a bit, but then... For about a year. Yeah. Then, then I got a job working for the designers Andrew Rhodes in her shop. That lasted three months and I got the sack. Uh, I'm not going to go into it, but I got the sack. Okay. <laughs> so then, then I went back on the makeup counters for a little while and my neighbour in the uh, block of flats that I lived, who was also a friend from Birmingham, a very good friend, I talk about him loads in the book, Curtin Mark, he got a job for Southwark Social Services as a social worker, social um, care worker for people with learning difficulties. And obviously it was a lot better pay than my makeup counter or any job that we'd been done before. So I thought, oh, I can do that. And so having no experience of people with learning difficulties whatsoever, having no care experience whatsoever about anything, I applied for this job and talked my way into it. And I was offered the job. And for the next two years, I worked with a group of people, only a group of four men with learning difficulties. They were all out of, fresh out of the uh, hospitals. So at that time, they were closing all the mental hospitals, as we called them then. I don't suppose they'd be called that now, but they were closing them all down and bringing people back into the community, quite rightly so, I, I believe. So there was four very institutionalised people with quite severe learning difficulties, um, and a team of, I think there was about eight of us who used to look after them 24 hours a day. And they'd be in their own home, it was adapted. Um, and it was a, an absolute eye-opener for me because I'd never thought I could do a job like that, you know. I didn't like wiping my own bum. <laughs> so the thought of wiping someone else's. But it's amazing when you have a form of relationship, even if it is a professional relationship like the ones I had with the clients, and you get to know them and empathise with them, you find you can do things that you probably couldn't do before. You could do personal care. I never thought I could do any form of personal care. I now know that I can do any form of personal care. So it, it was very, you know, it was very informative for me because it also, for the first time, meant I had to empathise with people other, you know, who weren't like me or who weren't like anyone I knew. You know, so it was it was an interesting time. It certainly taught me a lot. I had a lovely client as well who I was a key worker to. His name was David as well. It's funny, everyone in my life who's been important has been called David, <laughs> including me. Um, anyway, <laughs> that aside, I had this lovely client and he had some speech difficulties, but because I spent so much time with him, I, I could tell what he was saying, you know, and I, I sort of understood what he was saying. So I became his like translator because no one else could understand him because he wouldn't wear his false teeth. So he got no teeth. He flushed them down the loo and I'd say, where are your teeth? Flushed them, flushed them. Um, and, Delighted with himself. Yeah, I was like, oh, have you? Okay, you don't want to wear them then? No, it's okay. You don't have to wear them then. Because it, in the hospital, they would have been forced to wear them, yes. made to wear them. So it's your house, if you don't want to wear your teeth, you don't have to wear your teeth. 
If you want to wear a Mickey Mouse T-shirt at 65, you can wear a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. So it was, it was good. You know, it was a wonderful time. I wouldn't change it. And I, I loved David very, very dearly. He was a very sweet, lovely little person. What made you change that job? By that time in the 90s, the AIDS thing had, was really prevalent. You know, it was like everywhere. And I'd, obviously I knew people who were dying. Another friend of mine, Claire's, Claire, who worked with us um, at the, the, the home for the people with learning difficulties, she'd got a job as a social worker at the London Lighthouse, which was at the time Europe's, well, I think it was the world's biggest centre for people with HIV and AIDS. It had all been funded on donations. You know, Elton John gave a million and all, all the, you know, but it's this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful place in um, Ladbrook Grove that had a palliative care uh, system where people could go and die with dignity because you heard all these terrible stories of people dying in isolation and their partners not being allowed to see them because, you know, gay marriage wasn't a thing then. Oh, there were some terrible, terrible stories. So Lighthouse was set up as sort of like a model of care. It had a daycare centre. It had a drop-in centre where people could go and discuss things, have problems, get help, access, you know, help for themselves through professional people. There was 250 paid staff and about 500 volunteers kept it going. And it was an amazing, amazing place. And Claire had got this job there and she said, oh, you should come over and see what we do. It's like, it's incredible. And I went and it was incredible and it just blew my mind. I thought, oh, I want to work here. I want to be part of this. They've got this amazing ethos, work ethos about with equal opportunities and non-judgmental. And it was just mind-blowing for me. I thought, this is how the world should be like this. You know, everything should be like this. And so I applied for a, a centre support part-time centre support job, which is basically switchboard reception and a little bit of support and information for clients. And I organise tea parties and just things to bring people together, you know, because and HIV... Possibly because of your earlier job, your two years. That oh, will have helped. It, would, it helped enormously. I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise, you know, because I'd never witnessed anyone in need, you know, physical need of help or, you know, need to talk about things. I'd been very blinkered and the lighthouse, I was exposed to everything <laughs> straight away, really. You know, it was like people were dying and there was much suffering, but there was also lots and lots of joy. It was a wonderful place to work. The support that you received from your co-workers was incredible and, and it was all programmed so that you could carry on, you know, right from the top. You'd have support support meetings you'd have a support group you were listened to by your management it was an incredible place to be hugely humbling as well because you saw people in such terrible plights because in those days there was no you know medication really people that hadn't even there was nothing you know you died basically the tv campaigns yeah were horrific all about Dying, death, you know, death and tombstones, dying. tombstones and the falling to the ground. And, yeah. I mean, it was such a scary, scary time. It was horrific, and people, and because HIV in those days was predominantly at first a gay thing, it was just another rod to be beaten with. It was only, only. I mean, it's still, you know, 
is still used as a, as a as a rod against some people, you AIDS victim and things, even though it's a predominantly heterosexual thing now. So yeah, it was kind of kind of eye opening and wonderful and horrific and incredible all in rolled into one. I mean, I had some amazing experiences there. I met Princess Diana a couple of times. I remember it was huge, wasn't it? When she, she went when to she went shake to the, the hand of a, yeah, yeah, of a patient. She, she was amazing. She yeah. was amazing. And I actually met her three times in total. Twice there was no, I just saw her. Um, she would often pop in to visit unannounced and she'd just, Kensington Palace was only around the corner. So she'd just drive in on her own. One morning, very early, um, the bell went on the gate for the car park. So I opened the car park, big black car pulls in. Didn't know who was, who was in it or driving or anything. So and she parked, the black car parked on one of the disabled bays near a reception window. So I banged on the window <laughs> because she hadn't got a badge they, or they hadn't got a badge and sort of shushed her up, shushed the car and so she reversed the car and then she came in and it was her. Oh my God. I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Your Royal Highness. And by that time, she wasn't Royal Highness. Okay. She was just Princess Diana of Wales. But because she'd been such a strong patron and wonderful, you know, asset to the Lighthouse community, we all decided amongst ourselves that we didn't care that the Royal Family had taken the HRH offer. We would continue to call her Your Royal Highness. And so she sort of looked at me strangely when I said Your Royal Highness. And I was, I, it was very early in the morning. It was about quarter past eight. And I'd been sitting on reception, there was no one in the building, no one was up and no one was at work because people came to work at nine. And I'd been reading um, a Map and Lucia book by E.F. E. F. Benson and it had got a bookmark that was a big penis, basically like a, 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 a herring penis, you know, at the artist. And, um, and she sort of looked at the book and she said, hmm, interesting book, and picked it up. Oh, no. And there was the penis. She opened it. And I, was like, and I just looked at her and I went, sorry. <laughs> and she said, good choice of, good read though, E.F. Benson. I went, yeah, I love E.F. Benson. She said, he's very camp, isn't he? I went, yeah, I love, I love it. I love it. And I was like, oh, dying inside, you know. And um, I had to announce her anyway that she was here. So I phoned the residential unit. And for some reason, I couldn't bring myself to say, Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Wales is standing two inches away from me. Can she come up? So I just said, well, there's someone to visit the unit. And the nurse on the other end said, who? Oh, no. And I said, well, uh, someone. And it's, yes, I know. I know you said someone, David, but who? You know the protocol. We have to know who it is. <laughs> and, and then she, I heard laughter at the other end of the phone and obviously they knew, you know, they knew she was coming. I said, I'll oh, bring her up then. So I took her to the lift and we went up to the lift, to the unit together. And I just remember standing in this lift thinking, oh my God, that's Princess Diana. <laughs> and I was shocked at and she, how tall she was. Because I for some reason thought she was small. She wasn't. She was very, very pretty, very nicely turned out. She was lovely. And, and she was so nice to the people who use that service. She was a wonderful, wonderful, what she did was amazing. It was amazing because it changed a lot of people's perception, didn't it? It totally did. It and did. with one act, just all she had to do was take someone's kindness. hand. Well, the actual official sponsor, the main lady, was Princess Margaret at Lighthouse. 
She only visited once, to my knowledge, and when she did visit, she didn't touch anyone, she didn't shake their hand. She even had her own glasses brought in, which she used at the meal that they had. Very off, you know, not pleasant, really. Went round, had a look at everything. No smiling, no interaction, really. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And when Diana was there, it was always a completely different story. She'd go and sit in the smoking area with people. How are you? You know, she knew people's names. Um, she hugged people. She was interested in what people were saying. You know, and of course, when she came, the papers came. <laughs> so, but she knew that as well. Of course, she did. She come. In, she would come in sort of unannounced quite often. But when the official, she came for a big official function and to do a speech, and she did this groundbreaking speech at Lighthouse about ending the stigma. I've never seen anything like it, really. It was like God had arrived. They'd sectioned the street off. There was hundreds of paparazzi. I'm not kidding. Not, not 10, not 20. I'm talking hundreds. People were screaming when she arrived. It, I thought, God, you know, it's Princess Diana, not Michael Jackson. It was amazing to see people's reaction. And she knew it. And she was like a different person. When she got out of the car, she was poised. She was dressed in a red smart jacket, shook everyone's hands, accepted the bouquet. It was like a completely different person. But as soon as she got through the door, the door was shut. Paparazzi were outside, the press were outside. And she went, thank goodness for that. And then she was just the Diana that they all knew and she was wonderful. When I was at Lighthouse, it was all so heavy. Your work was so important. It was, you know, you actually felt needed, even in a role like mine, which was, you know, admin, basically. You knew you felt important in your job. It was such a big responsibility, having serious issues. You know, people's lives were affected by how you were, what you said. Um, And I think in a way that helped contribute to making what would become Dusty O. <laughs> you know, I'd been, obviously I'd been going out, I'd always loved going out, I'd always loved dressing up. I'd started playing around with drag and things at Kinkagalinki. But Lighthouse, because it was shift work, it also offered me the opportunity to still go out. I could go out after work and not be in until two o'clock the next afternoon or it could always work it so that you could go out. And I started going out a lot more and because I'd got a little bit more money, I started to indulge myself a little bit in my Westwood habit. And, um, and I started to be noticed a lot more because I could afford to be visually more spectacular, you know. And I think it was important for me to get out and do something totally hedonistic and totally ridiculous because what I was doing in the day mattered. And also I'd, I started a friendship, a very, very close friendship with someone who was very sick at the time, who was poorly. So I'd got a very intense home life, living with my friend who was sick, a very intense work life, because it was, I felt it was so important. So the other part of my life was totally hedonistic, totally dressy up It involved makeup, wigs, high heels, you name it. I lived this totally hedonistic, separate existence. And it was fantastic. I loved it, you know. Were you buying the outfits? Were they new or were they secondhand? No, they were new. Wow. (laughs) I had this this motto. Once I went into Vivian Westwood's shop and Vivian's mother, who was still alive at the time, she uh, used to 
knit some of the jumpers and she'd knitted one of these great big cable armour jacket jumper type thing. I think it was about £500 and that was a lot of money in those days. And she saw me trying it on and she, I said, she said, oh, I knitted that. I'm like, oh, lovely. She said, you should buy that and live on beans for the month. <laughs> And I did. I was about to say, <laughs> I can imagine that's exactly what so, you did. So I did. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, I worked hard. I did lots of overtime. I got my money from, I, I was also by that point, it was quite cheap for me to live because David, a friend who I was looking after, another David, he'd got um, a little flat in King's Cross and it had got a spare room. And I went in there as sort of partly his friend, partly his carer to help him if if things became worse, which they did eventually for him. And we'd got a very tight, very close, very loving friendship. And um, the sort of opposite side of that was this mad creature running around at night. But then I started getting work at night as well. People, because of how I looked... And because I knew some of the right people by that point, started offering me work doing the door and, you know, various things like that in clubs, giving out flyers and you name it, I would do it. And um, I met this couple called Debbie and Rick who ran a big sort of mixed gay rave club called Pushka. Very beautiful club. It was all, they would take on a venue just for the night once a month, dress it beautifully, theme it. You know, we had Salvador Dali themes, Winter Wonderland themes. It would all, and it was like top end clubbing. It was quite expensive, the tickets. And they asked me to start doing the door there. And so I did that. And gradually my name began to sort of get noticed on the club scene, which in those days, because um, it was a lot bigger for a start than it is now and five times bigger, everyone went out, you know. There was no internet as such. So if you wanted to see something, you wanted to see or be part of something, you had to literally do it. You had to go out, you know. So and I wanted to be part of this scene and I was by that point. And obviously a lot of other people do and they read about it in magazines and because that's how in those days you got to know what was what and what was fashiony and who told you what was cool and what was not. Um, and from there... That's where Dusty O was born, really. Um, and gradually she took over my life. <laughs> if you'd been seen in one outfit, surely then you, you, you would want to get bigger and better outfits. Oh, always. And I was always obsessed with Westwood because um, when I was a lot younger, I'd, I'd had a friend who had like a couple of Westwood tops. This was in Birmingham. And obviously I couldn't have a Westwood top. I didn't know where to get them. I didn't know how much there were, you know, I was totally naive at that point. And I was always made to feel like a lesser person because I didn't have these wonderful things. And so when I got the chance of buying them myself, I just went for it, you know, and I, I they were very good with me at Westwood, actually. L literally after about a year of buying the stuff, they gave me 40% off, which I still have today. <laughs> yeah. um, because they, I think in their mind, they see it as like club ambassadors. And at that time I was a, become or had started to become sort of well known on the London club scene. You were like one of the first influencers. In a way, in a way, yeah, in a way. Well, of course, they sent you out knowing that, you know, knowing you were advertising wear their yeah. product. Yeah. yeah, of course. And they also used to do this amazing sale once a year, which they don't do now, where you could buy like beautiful sample outfits for 50 quid, jacket, shirt, everything, you know. They're, and they're not as good now that I've seen them. <laughs> but in those days, you could 
I would spend like a thousand pounds on my card, on my credit card, and buy ten outfits. And that would, I think, well, that's my season, you know. And then the money I got back, obviously, from doing my jobs, my door jobs, and flyers, and eventually when I started to DJ, that would pay back the season money. Um, but it was constantly like this, this quest for more for different looks, for different wigs, different shoes. And because I've become associated with Westwood, people expected it, you know, especially when I started to DJ and started going around different cities and different around the world. I was always billed as like, you know, the Westwood, the Westwood one, you know, the one who wore the, the uh, massive heels, the one who wore the fur, you know, that one. I was that one. And it's expensive <laughs> to be that one. It became so that I wouldn't get the work unless I was that person. So that person took over, really. I didn't mind at the time. I had a lot of fun. It was great. So let's start with the name. So Dusty O. Dusty O, right. People often <laughs> ask me this. It's kind of started from um, when John and I had, were Dusty San Moritz and Benny Bunsen and Hedges at the early Kinker Glinker days. But I decided I didn't like the San Moritz, so I got rid of that. And of course, by this time, the 90s, I was sort of like a standalone artiste. <laughs> and um, I wanted my own name. And everyone in those days had sort of like a club name. You know, there was Boy George, there was Princess Julia, there was Taste Tim. The list goes on. So I thought, what could I have? And I went out one night and there used to be a very well-known, and still is well-known, drag queen called Yvette, who used to host massive, massive club called Love Muscle on a Saturday night in Brixton, London. And she was a bit blind, Yvette. <laughs> she wore glasses. And we got chatting and she said, oh, write me your number down, darling. I might have a job for you. So I wrote Dusty and then I just put a, a, a little heart with a kiss either side. And she must have thought the heart was an O. She went, oh, Dusty O. And that's where Dusty O came from. And from there, I started... Uh, another club in Leicester Square called Bambina, which was an amazing place. It was actually called the Viper Rooms initially. It was owned by Johnny Depp. And the Saturday nights, there was a club there called Bambina and they gave me my own room. To cut a long story short, that's where I started DJing and they gave me the VIP room to look after. And because it was so glitzy and glam and you get pop stars and celebrities and all sorts in there, as well as all the most cool designers club kids, fashion kids. It was, it was fantastic. Um, I thought, I can't just be dusty. Oh, I want to glamorise this a little bit. So I added the very miss and <laughs> I gave myself a title and it doesn't make sense. And I don't think it made sense then and it doesn't make sense now, <laughs> but that's how the very miss dusty was born. I was uh, granding myself up, I think. <laughs> Okay, that seems like a lovely place to end this episode because next time we'll talk about the 2000s when you are sharing a stage with Kylie, Madonna and Cher. Yeah, I had a good decade. 2000 to 2010 was my celebrity decade. <laughs> There's lots of stories. Wait till I tell you about Madonna. Okay, George, I've created a soundtrack for the 90s. All the three are special to me, but see what you think of them anyway. So the first one I've put is Believe, Cher. The second one is Vogue, Madonna. 
And the third one is one of my top three favourite songs ever, Generations of Love by you. Which would you like? Well, I would probably listen to Vogue because I think that's my favourite Madonna record. You know, I think, and I have a lot of Madonna records that I like, weirdly. You know, people probably think I don't like Madonna, but actually she's done a lot of records that I love. My favourite Madonna record is Take a Bow. I love that. I play that mm-hmm. all the time still. She's always nice about you. She always seems quite nice, you know. Well, I think she's the I, nod. As I know, she doesn't ever mention me, so that's probably, maybe that's her being nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I have to say, she doesn't. She did say one thing about me once, which was, um, she said I was mean to her in the, the 80s and I continued being mean to her, which probably is true. But anyway, you know, we're older and wiser now, but Vogue is a great record. And although my, um, I remember at the time, a friend of mine called Johnny Darnell had done this, record called Elements of Vogue, which was slightly ahead of, of the Mondo. Yeah, yeah. So for me, is I used to play that out as a DJ, Elements of Vogue, and it's a really good song to look up. But Madonna, she just stole that moment. You know, she did, she great, took it. You know, the great, no, but the thing is, instead of kind of worrying about what other people are doing, like just say, oh, I need to be quicker. I need yeah. to move faster. I need <laughs> Get to be sharper. I need to Get not that. sit in a corner with my head in my hands, but actually go, what are people doing? And what can I add to it? Because actually nothing is original. No. And it's really not about who does it first. It's about, well, it's about who does it best, obviously. Yeah. I think in that, in that context, that song is just so good. It still sounds good now. Yeah, it still resonates. What yeah. about Cher, Believe? Well, Cher, I'm a massive Cher fan from the 60s. I mean, I remember buying, like, I Got You, Babe, Gypsies, Trance and Thieves. So I've always loved Cher. I love her voice, you know, and... Um, She's a lovely person too, isn't she? I've never met her. I've never met Cher. That is the... You weird. have. You met her no. with me. You I met her with know. me in Italy. Yeah, but I didn't really meet Not her. chat. Yeah, we weren't no. chatty chatty. I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't like sit down with Cher and have a chat. <laughs> no, it wasn't like... It is according to my book. <laughs> oh, well, that goes, well, like, well, I won't argue with you, but it's like, you know, I've met Debbie <laughs> Harry, but I've had tea with Debbie. You know, I've sat with her sort of yeah, for great amounts yeah. of time. And I've sort of been to her hotel room and she was in a dressing gown. So I feel like I know her really well. Yeah. <laughs> Cher was a little bit of a sort of a mystery to me. Yeah. She yeah. fascinates me. I mean, she's just, yeah, she's a triumph. I mean, she's just one of those people. How many people in the world can have, you know, their name Cher and you just know that? <laughs> she's fabulous. Okay, well, thanks for that, George. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at the noughties. This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork designed by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. The boy who sat Yeah.